Beyond Governance, Making Sense of Doing Business in South Africa is proudly sponsored by Plus94 Research, the science of decision-making. We've weathered the unexpected. We've stepped into a new world. And now it is a time for our businesses to re-emerge. Sure-footed, clear-headed, and strategically on point. It is a time for greater certainty, for accurate, actionable market research and business intelligence to make effective, up-to-date decisions. South Africa, that is how we move our businesses and economy forward. Plus 94 Research, the science of decision-making. A very good morning to you and welcome to this week's installment of Beyond Governments here at 101.9 High FM. My name is Nimrod Upambele. As always, I am delighted to share this space and time with you as we continue to bring you insights and observations from our esteemed guests who often share anecdotes because at some point of their lives, they have to deal with management and governance controversies. Through the assessments of any of the situations, which are often complex, they are able to nuance and give us, thus giving us an opportunity or a fresh perspective, which is quite remarkable. In my view, this is a value-add of which this show takes pride, as we understand how complex managing large entities, so many vested interests. As always, I'm not flying solo. I'm flying by two extraordinary producers, Vusima Singer as well as Harry Seleke. Gentlemen, thank you very much for your hard work and for putting me on a straight and narrow path. The much of listeners delight, if I might add. Moving along, I am sure most of you are proud, proud to be South Africans. The Springbok has displayed yet another stunning delivery, which saw host uh, eating the grass, uh, some would say uh, pasta, whatever the, or whatever the case might be. It was a nail-biting game, which saw South Africans sitting on the edge of their seats with their hearts literally on their throats as we were gasping for air. What a spectacular break. I'm sure it will go down in history books uh, for a while. My takeaway from that point is that uh, meritocracy, consistent fielding of performance, and ingraining a team spirit, that is a formula that is always winning. Paradoxically, uh, mediocracy, inconsistent performance is part of, if that is part of the template moving forward, we are likely to, to, to win. But if we're not putting the right people at the right position, people who display passion in whatever game, whether it's in our boards or in, in sporting field, we are likely not to get what we, we all deserve. Perhaps maybe this is an exa- this is a lesson for a soccer team. Uh, they could learn a thing or two in terms of what it means to, to play as a team and the hunger that is needed, you know, to, to win. Anyway. The show is not about rugby, but you know, and again, the, perhaps maybe the most important thing is the the science uh, of this, uh, the the strategy development, which which we have, which we have seen, which was very um, seamless uh, in terms of the execution. Moving along, um, in our last encounter, I had a privilege of interviewing Sifiso uh, Falala, who is who was joined by Johan Costa, who is the CEO at Marketing Research Foundation. Our engagements was underpinned by a recently unveiled report on the marketing of all product survey they referred to as MAPS. The two colleagues gave us food for thought whilst strengthening our understanding of, of the consumer behavior and the extent to which marketing agencies use data and evidence to inform their marketing strategies. 
Uh, if you miss that particular episode or any of the episodes for that matter, don't, don't worry. Simply uh, visit our website, which is www.hire.com. Retrieve uh, that particular podcast and share your views with us. Our SMS line is 34519. Telegram is 0618951095. And of course, your views and thoughts are most welcome via my Twitter handle or X handle, so it is called, which is at Dr. Menon. Before I engage my esteemed guests on the exodus of senior executive and board members at major SOEs, I quickly want to reflect on the journey assumed by the former public protector advocate Mukabana, who was moved, if you recall, by majority of parliamentarians owing to the report that Section 195 inquiry that recommended her removal on grounds of incompetence and, and misconduct. According to the MENA report, she now she, she felt undone by the ANC and the DA. And the irony for me is that the newly found political home chastised at some point. She was called names, uh, including sellout. It is not official, nevertheless, that she's sworn as a member of the Red Beret. And that's... Uh, Wish you good luck. Uh, I I suppose the important point that I'm trying to make when you juxtapose her with her predecessor, who, uh, to the advocate not concerned, who was appointed honorary professor of law at Stellenbosch, uh, where she's holding a chair of social justice. I mean, the two chalking cheese. I suppose from Kobane's point of view, the principle remains. I mean, she's entitled, she's got every right to join any political party of a choice. After all, we live in a democracy, aren't we? And at a fundamental level for me, uh, we are not talking about an ordinary person here. We are talking about a public protector, a person who was overseeing legislated uh, entity with huge responsibilities. And, and it didn't go well uh, based on what we all see. Anyway, uh, as we move along, without any waste of time, uh, let me take this opportunity to welcome my guest, uh, uh, Professor Patrick Fitzgerald, uh, who have had an opportunity to be taught by when he was the head of public development management, uh, which is now called the School of Governance at Vets, uh, as well as a familiar voice uh, to on, on the radio, other than Mr. Ellen McCorkey. Gentlemen, thank you very much for gracing Beyond Governance with your presence. Thank you. Good morning. Um, yes, Nimrod, it was a great victory by the box, but yesterday the, I'm afraid the Proteus choked against Netherlands. So, um, I wonder if our SOEs are winners or they chokers. Well, the lights are. <laughs> Mr. McCorkey? Good morning, Nimrod, and good morning, Prof. Good morning to your listeners as well. Well, perhaps maybe to set the scene, uh, because we're talking about the massive uh, exodus of executive, both at uh, uh, in most of our parastatal. And I recall last week, uh, before Popo Mlefe resigned, anticipated his resignation. Uh, don't tell me how, but I figured. But perhaps maybe in setting the scene, we have seen few resignation. One at the Transnet, Poshia Debi, who's in the group uh, CFO, Nonkulelo Jameni. We also heard that Caesar, Transnet Fright CEO, Caesar Mzemela, also resigned. And as if that was not enough, Paul Mokwena, Mokwana, Chairperson of ESCOM, also resigned. And this very week, that we also heard that Popo Mulefe uh, also resigned. And this cannot be coincident, can it? Uh, personally, let me start with Ellen. What seems to be mischief here? Well, I'm not so sure whether there's any mischief. I think that the turbulence that you see reflects the culture and the values that seem to be either the wrong values or the misapplied values. Whatever it is, when you see organizations going through turbulence, 
you always have to investigate the root cause. And when you look at the root cause, you will see that there's a problem with the ecosystem. Number one, there is absolutely no doubt about the fact that there are big, 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 mega issues around the area of performance. So there's no doubt about that particular area because naturally executives and boards are, are put in place so that they can drive the objectives of what that particular organization is meant to do. Uh, so both the power utility as well as the infrastructure and transport or logistics utility are not necessarily moving in the right direction as we speak. So that's the first part. The second part, of course, relates to outthink governance around how that is articulated. Well, that's via the Act of Parliament that is specific to that particular entity. And you've got to be able to raise this issue that it's people who put together legislation in terms of how things should be done. I'm not so sure myself the intention Maybe the intention at the beginning was noble when you put together the legislation piece that then says, and and then you cover that with some of the rules and maybe the policy pieces that say the board will appoint the CO after consulting the minister or something to do with that, or the minister is the one who appoints the board. So that level of, of a noise needs to be uh, killed because quite clearly in the private sector, people would have a very different interpretation, you know. Uh, shareholders meet at the annual general meeting or they can call a special general meeting of shareholders. They put together the board and then after that, the board is tasked with all the responsibilities of moving the direction of the company, including the appointment of the operational people, i.e. the CEO. And sometimes they may, depending on the MOI, get involved with the appointment of the CFO as well because generally the chief financial officer will sit on the board as an executive director. And then you go to government and government wants to interpret governance differently because that's all driven by its own values in terms of what it is that they are trying to do, which in a sense is not in itself a problem. If you say we would like cabinet to appoint or would like, in fact, I don't even think it says cabinet, I think the minister to appoint or to agree or to approve the appointment, there's nothing wrong with that in itself. If the culture is right, in other words, the culture that says the person uh, to whom you are deferring the actual last uh, uh, mile, the last decision, are themselves people of experience, skill, and, and, and questions, uh, competence and skill. And that our own process in itself is designed from a culture point of view in such a way that there is absolutely no doubt about the fact that a meritocracy is at the center and we're not actually just sitting there playing politics. Uh, we want this person from that faction, whatever the case might be. So if your culture is right and the values that underpin that are correct, for instance, you could have things in culture saying we only hire people who are technically competent. We hire people who've got an organized mind. We hire people who've got a high level of execution capability and we're going to hire the best people that we can find out there in the marketplace. So you have those kinds of things that are embedded and that are codified as part of the culture. It shouldn't be a really a problem who is the appointing authority because in the final analysis, the appointing authority is hiring to the template. In other words, all of us are what? Putting to the picture. You know, as a golfer, we appreciate what, what that says. Part to the picture. In other words, you must have a picture in your head and then you're putting to that particular picture. The minister would part to the picture. The cabinet would Interesting observation from the end, uh, Alan. Can Perth maybe just bring in Prof here in terms of his own assessment in, with regards to what he considers to be a mischief? Yes, I think that um, Alan has uh, raised many of the pertinent points. I, I thought he was going to be the expert and I was going to rabbit on about generic things like culture and values but I think one might want to push it just one step further and say, if there is not appropriate relationships, 
between the shareholder who happened to be, in the case of public enterprises, in the political domain, politicians, the board, who ought to be the great, the good, and competent board members, and then the executives whom they appoint. And if this this chain of governance logic was to work, then we might have public enterprises that are actually working for the public good. But I sometimes wonder why the governance breaks down maybe due to the pattern of relationships and appointments. Are we really appointing the great and good to our boards or are we appointing from a particular network of people who may then owe something to the people who appointed them, which facilitates there being more interference than there really could be. And are our public enterprises, in terms of their values, have they not drifted more to being seen on the pattern of the private sector? I think it's almost taken for granted in South Africa that, you know, public enterprises are companies like private sector companies just owned by the public. And actually, this is not the theory or the practice in many countries where there are successful public enterprises, which work on a slightly different logic. And people appointed do not expect to be gaining from their appointments in terms of typical private sector, business networking, leveraging other business interests in some ways, gaining more than just having this on your CV or serving your country or the public good, but actually gaining certain business advantages, career advantages, as if you were maneuvering in the private sector with no specific understanding that public enterprises are actually supposed to be for the public good and they are not supposed to be profitable for individuals or even specifically for the careers of individuals on their boards. So I think there has been a drift to uh, seeing public enterprises just as companies like any companies which happen to be owned by the state. And I think that is the road to perdition. That is the road to disaster. Once you apply that, that, that private sector template set of values, set of understandings, and as Alan was alluding, it doesn't quite work in that different, uh, more politicized climate and where the actual aims and objectives of those public enterprises should be significantly different to private sector companies. Thanks for that observation, Prof. But here's the thing that I am picking up two similarities between what Alan has alluded to as well as you. Uh, obviously, culture and values are important and the turbulence has got to do with misalignment of values and of values, uh, and, and, and culture and values and the extent to which these are being applied in the public sector without really understanding and appreciating the mechanic of translating those values into practice, particularly when it's related to uh, the role of the minister, of which Ellen's views that it is okay, provided a minister who is able to sign off a particular appointment himself or herself uh, is a person of stature who understands the details of what is required to drive SOE forward. But And you're saying, on the other hand, it's also about the relationships. If those relationships are not in sync uh, and extent to which how public sector are being perceived as an entity that ought to drive public good. And, and yet 
the caveat is that the officials, they do not have the kind of networking opportunities which their private sector counterpart have. But here's a question. While we ponder on that question, let's take a break. We'll come back in a second. Beyond Governance, Making Sense of Doing Business in South Africa is proudly sponsored by Plus94 Research, the science of decision-making. We've weathered the unexpected. We've stepped into a new world. And now it is the time for our businesses to re-emerge. Sure-footed, clear-headed, and strategically on point, it is a time for greater certainty, for accurate, actionable market research and business intelligence to make effective, up-to-date decisions. South Africa, that is how we move our businesses and economy forward. Plus 94 Research, the science of decision-making. This is Beyond Governance. My name is Nimrat Mbela. I'm joined by Professor Petty Fitzgerald as well as Ellen Mokoki. We are talking about the mischief, if you like, the kind of exodus we have seen in state-owned entities over the last week or so. Before we went to the break, uh, the two colleagues have given us a very, very, a very interesting insight as a basis for the cause and the cause and effect. Ellen Mokoki's point of departure is that we have to recognize culture and values and, of course, profits says the governance chain as it relates to the relationship between the minister as well as those officials has to be pretty much aligned and the appointment should not be seen to be as as politicized. Those two anecdotes suggest to me that um, this is a point that was raised by William Kumete. In his diagnosis, he says the SOE business model is driven by ideology, not economic imperatives. It is on this basis that whatever changes that are made, unless the ideology or the, the, the model that drives SOEs is that of a business, the pendulum will not move in a positive way. Prof, your take on that? There's not a lot that I usually disagree with, with uh, what William Gumedi has to say. I, I must accept that. But yes, I mean, there, there is a tendency for us to want public enterprises to maximize rather than to optimize. And not that we do that successfully, not that we are running public enterprises and maybe those that had a more specific mission to actually generate surplus, not that we have successfully maximized a lot of that surplus. But indeed, public enterprises should rather be optimized. Uh, issues like sustainability uh, are much more important than than surplus. Um, we we we've gone through globally this whole attack that happened a few decades ago on the concept of public enterprises, the whole Thatcherite Reaganite idea that that they waste resources and that if you put things in the hands of the private sector, resources will be much more efficiently used, which is true at a particular level. That, however, didn't work out so well. And people then said, well, maybe what we should do is, is, is have public enterprises, but just run them more like private enterprises, which is, I think, where we are in South Africa, although we don't do that very well. And I think in, in certain instances, when we look at a, a bigger picture and we see where are there still viable, sustainable, public enterprises, state-owned enterprises that are filling a particular niche, 
that are dealing with issues of common concern like electricity, like water, like transport infrastructure, and are actually working. We can see they are indeed guided by a a very different set of objectives. There is much greater weight on optimization of resources over a much longer period, looking at their sustainability and understanding the niche that they play in a mixed economy. I think we've lost all that. We've lost it. You know, it's a kind of video game now, our state enterprises. It's who can get appointed at huge salaries, at huge bonuses, temporarily because nobody lasts. Use it as a stepping stone to get another job or to put that notch on your CV. We've lost the mission. We've lost the values. And I've probably lost the point of your initial question, Nimrod. <laughs> no, no, you quite, you're still spot on uh, in the main prof. Um, the, the issue here, which I want Alan to come back on, the diagnosis made by William Kumete suggesting that the business, SOE business model uh, is driven by an ideology. Hence, we are in the kind of mess we are at. And Prof, you hit it on a nail that when you are looking at the state-owned entities, the idea was to optimize. The idea was to look at the long-term sustainability, particularly on big ticket items such as electricity and water and transport. We should be in the right trajectory. But the men and women that are deployed in those particular positions don't seem to have the same values. And we really makes us Miss the boat in what you refer to as a niche which SOE needs to play in a mixed economy. Ellen, your take on that? Didn't read what uh, William Gomete published in that particular aspect. My two cents worth would be that, you know, it could be a combination of ideology, a combination of inexperience is one of the factors that seems to be coming out screaming very clearly because we've uh, come to accept. And uh, we've argued this point, for instance, as the South African Chamber of Commerce and Industry, that the government simply does not know how to put together a board. Now, for any coach of any team, you spoke about the spring box earlier on. If you don't know how to put together a team together, you're not likely going to be able to win matches. And and that's one aspect, of course, that I don't know. And I don't think that government has actually looked itself. It's easier to blame those particular boards when they don't perform or those particular executive cohorts when they're not actually performing. But nobody's looking at the coach to say, but you, the person that put together that particular team, do you know that you yourself are the main cause of making the mistakes that have actually been made? It is possible that ideology is one of the aspects because I see it happening all the time. And of course, I will make this particular controversial point and I'm allowed to make this point because I'm black, right? So I'm a black executive, so I can make this point. Affirmative action should not be the main criteria of hiring people. It's one of the qualifications. It's not the qualification. This means if you are going to look for people of high competence, you are going to look in a much more broader pool. You are actually fundamentally looking for the best candidates. Okay. Now, when you've met the best candidate criteria, you are now saying, oh, now I've got four or five best people. There's very little between all of them. I'm now going to consider issues of affirmative action. I'm going to issues, I'm going to consider issues of who is black. I'm going to consider issues of who is female. I'm going to consider issues of who comes from the disabled groups or who comes from the rural area, whatever. Any of the other social justice issues that you want to address, you can now address them. Not on the grave of competence, but on the shoulders of competence. In other words, you can't build a cater of high competence by insisting 
that the only criteria is that, oh, I want black people only. And then when I have black people, I will then try to choose the best amongst them. What if I'm not saying it is like that? Okay. But what if in the selection pool that you have actually uh, collected yourself, you don't even have the best of black people available because maybe the best of black people don't even want to work for an SOE because they are stuck in, 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 in some of the JSE listed companies. You have not resolved the issue of your own culture, of your organization in part of as, 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 as an ecosystem that is the right culture that can attract the right people. I know personally a lot of very highly skilled, highly competent people who'd never touch government. They say very clearly, who, me, I would never go there. Because government is known even in the, amongst the black executives as a place where you go to die. In other words, it's a place where you go to get your career destroyed or damaged. So those are the issues that need to be resolved. Whether you call that ideology or whatever you call it, you need to resolve those issues so that you can now go back and say, I know when I'm putting out an ad out there, I am actually going to have a net that's wider, that's going to attract the best candidates that is possible or I'm going to go out and headhunt the best candidate that is possible. So we ask ourselves the same question. If you go to the top 40 JSE listed entities and you look at the C-suite executives that work there, how many can you speculate would accept a job, either a transnet or ESCOM? Because I want to tell you, you're going to get less than 5%. That in itself is an indication of the perception, whether those executives are white or black, the perception that those executives would have that that is a poison chalice. This is not a place that we need to touch because the government is not fixing its own environment in terms of the culture and the values that permeate there. There are people who know Professor Malik Mampur. Yes, he was a, 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 the former ESCOM a, a chairperson. He was re- widely reported in the newspapers as having complained about the fact that the shareholder representative is meddlesome, interferes with board processes, etc., etc. Of course, I haven't had the version, the response of the minister in that particular regard, whether those particular allegations are true. But it's those kinds of things that then create a problem among some of the best talented people, because the best talented people are the ones who go, who have to be headhunted. They are not even going to respond to your ad, because they are not out there looking for a job anyway. So they are sitting in wherever they are sitting. These are the people who need to be tapped by any of the search companies to say, hey, would you be interested in looking at this particular job? And they will have a look and say, okay, let's see. What's the industrial relations environment there? What are the challenges? What's the governance piece? What's the performance management piece? And who are these board members that I'm actually going to report to? So if you put the wrong board members who are inexperienced, a senior executive is going to assume that I'm going to struggle with that particular board because those people are not at the level where they ought to be. So that's fundamentally an issue, whether you call that ideology, whether that's what William Comete was writing about, I do not know. But I would support the contention that we're not doing things the way we should actually be doing them because we're influenced by quite a a whole range of other things, as I said, and and I'm not attacking affirmative action. I myself, I I was a product of affirmative action, but I'm saying you can't go and choose that you're going to ignore the best talent because that best talent happens to be white, and then you're going to put a lesser, a black person. And I'm not suggesting by that either, by saying the people that have ever been put there were the worst people that were available. It it may well be that they were the best people that were available and the the organization was only able to attract those particular people as the best people because the culture only attracted that type of individual. So you need to change the entire ecosystem to be able to do this. On that note, let's take a quick break as we gravitate towards the end of the show. We'll be back in a minute. Beyond Governance, Making Sense of Doing Business in South Africa is proudly sponsored by Plus94 Research, the science of decision-making. We've weathered the unexpected. 
we've stepped into a new world, and now it is the time for our businesses to re-emerge. Sure-footed, clear-headed, and strategically on point, it is a time for greater certainty, for accurate, actionable market research and business intelligence to make effective, up-to-date decisions. South Africa, that is how we move our businesses and economy forward. Plus 94 Research, the science of decision-making. I agree with you talking about the changing of the ecosystem. Perhaps maybe Prof will come in here. Here's the thing. The, some of the executives that resigned, you know, from, from parastatals, they were the sort. I mean, Nunkule Lamini, the CFO, Pusha Debi, Shizam Zimela. These, in my view, were competent executives who somehow, and personally, I'm not sure about the exogenous consideration because we picked up that performance was substandard purely because uh, they've missed the targets by X, you know. But these, have, you know, put away exogenous factors. Let's look at endogenous factors, factors that the ministers has control, the board has control over. Surely the affirmative action point that you are raising in this particular instance does not hold, even though at the principal level I agree with you. Well, I don't know whether it holds or does not hold because I don't know that one of the things that we've complained about is we don't know what is the selection criteria that is actually being used. Okay. So, you know, we don't sit on the board. We, we don't know whether the executives were the right people, but here's what I'm going to say. If the selection criteria is based on science and the template is very clear and understood, then we can actually understand that is what it is. But remember the point that I made first. The first point that I made is. I'm not saying affirmative action is wrong. I'm saying it's one of the qualifying criteria. It is not the only criteria. In other words, you don't go out looking for, I'm looking for a black female to be the CEO of Transnet. I'm looking for a black female to be the CEO of SAA. I'm looking for the black female to be the CEO of ESCOM. You go and look for the best CEO that you can find to run those things. Now that you have five names that between them, there isn't anything in terms of differential. Then you say, who is black, who is female, who is all these other things. My perception is that the government seems to be pushing more the social justice issue as a main criteria for hiring people who come into those particular things. That's my perception. Now, whether that is true, I don't know, but it is a perception based on the experience that we actually see. Why? Because there are many, many, many highly qualified people, better than the people that we've seen, who just didn't show up in that particular level of selection. The second piece that deals with when you look at the government has this tendency, for instance, of assuming when they measure qualifications, they mean academic qualifications. In other words, if you have a degree or two, you went to a Vets Business School, you've got an MBA, therefore you should actually be, that's all there is to it, you qualify. Without looking at all the other aspects of performance track record, level of experience in that particular sector. What else do we know about that particular individual? There's this thing in senior executive level that we refer to as the flow effect. In other words, in organizations where IQ, which higher on IQ, the 5% of high perfor- of people who are high performance, the 95th percentile of those 5% of people who are high performance are not actually going to come from IQ. They're actually going to come from emotional intelligence. They're going to come from EQ. Across the four levels of emotional uh, intelligence, self-awareness, right? Self-management, because these two things, they give you self-mastery. Thirdly, empathy. And fourthly, and fourthly, social skills. Now, you've seen people being appointed because IQ was fine, academic qualifications were fine, but when you look at these EQ matters that make people to be high performers, you see that those people are actually falling significantly short of what is going on, 
Okay? So I'm saying that we need to have the signs that must influence how we look at this era of selection. It's difficult, of course, to comment on individuals because you are not there. You haven't seen the selection criteria. You didn't work with them. You don't know how they interact with other people. You don't know how good they are when it comes to these issues that I'm raising around self-awareness and self-management. You don't know that it would be unfair to pinpoint on that individual and that individual. But if you are going to say to me, I know that those people were competent, then I'm going to say, on what basis do you know that? I'm not saying they were not. I'm saying that I cannot know sitting here myself purely because I don't know whether they were hired on IQ only. I don't know whether they were hired on academic qualifications only. I don't even know whether the academic qualifications were relevant and or equal to the task, specific task of what they were actually meant to do. I don't know whether they had any experience. I don't know what kind of teams they put with them and mm-hmm. below them to be able to perform. I don't know whether the boards themselves were adequate in assisting the executives to be able to perform. So these are all unknown factors and it's dangerous, of course, to go into individual assessments. That's why we want to talk about the system itself, the process, the values, the culture, and everything else that ought to be able to say they build this particular template, and everybody else must measure themselves against that particular template. Interesting, interesting insights indeed. Uh, Can I bring Prof here? Helen has given us a food for thought, a lot of variables um, that are obviously of or that are intriguing. Your take, perhaps we'll be taking from the affirmative action, uh, not as a sole criteria, for identification and uh, uh, deploying individuals in those key positions. Yes, I'll come to affirmative action. I think um, a lot of what Alan says I I resonate with, but I I would express it slightly differently. In in the first instance, he he spoke about the politician and maybe the inadequacies in being able to put together the team. I think the point of governance is to enable us to get something done in perfect world. If we expect politicians to have particular capabilities or to be, you know, um, able to have the same match to their job role or job description as a coach of a top sporting team. I think we, we are delusional. Uh, politicians get to be politicians. They are politicians. They succeed at being politicians because they have completely different skills, criteria, abilities, or lack of abilities in certain respect. We'd be very lucky to get an appointment who, who may be as an individual politician. We'd, we'd have the slightest understanding of how to put together a board of a major parastatal that is responsible for Billions and billions of, 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 of public assets and, and also, um, indirectly for the well-being of, of, of tens of millions of our people. So I think we, we have to not expect that some wonderful individual is going to have a magic wand and transform the ecosystem. We, we have to use other means and, and, and that includes sticking strictly to the the rules of good governance, insisting on that, Parliament doing its job of oversight, the media, public intellectuals, the public themselves, and the consumers and the the supposed beneficiaries of the goods and services need to, they need to lift their voice and they need to prevail on on the system to perform more than is currently the case where the system seems to be in the hands of, I think, a rather small elite, which brings me to this idea of affirmative action. I don't know. I mean, to me, you know, uh, affirmative action, except for maybe here or there in a few instances, affirmative action targets have long been achieved. Demographic representation on boards has been achieved or overachieved. 
Likewise with the executive teams. You know, I'm, I'm not sure what sort of an issue. I'm not against what Alan says if there's some capable patriotic white person or other minority person that, that may be worth appointing by all means. Do so. Uh, but I, I think mainly, you know, we, we're talking about the choice of black talent. That's what we mainly talking about because that is the overwhelming demographic reality of South Africa. And in, in this instance, and Alan has alluded to the people who would not wish to be on these boards or not wish to be in these executive teams. That could be our problem. I'm not sure whether the push or the pull. Is it because so many of them do not wish to be or because they are not being considered? Because I imagine that I often think affirmative action is just a uh, uh, it's a linguistic overlay which covers up the fact that specific elite networks are tapped for this talent. And you know, we have this word in South Africa, politically connected. And we say, well, politically connected. But it's also not just politically connected in that narrow sense of people having specific party or a particular party ideological affiliation. There's also a business connected that, that sits as an adjacent or an interl- interlinked network with the politically connected. And in, in that sense, we have narrowed and diminished the pool of the talent we are drawing on. And um, even these criteria that, that are being used, I, I, I believe, and I know I'm, I'm to some extent repeating myself, looking for people who might be successful in a business environment. But there are plenty of people who are very competent executives who maybe are not necessarily um, coming out of the business environment. Um, I come from the university sector. We have many good executives. They're not running businesses, but they're running large and complex organizations. And they, they have, they are motivated by particular goals. They earn nothing like what you would earn as an executive of a parastatal. I think maybe that's one of our problems. We're paying much too much money. We're paying much too much large bonuses for people not achieving anything. Maybe if we lowered some of these board fees or don't pay board fees at all, expect people to serve because um, it's their patriotic duty, because they are contributing, because it's a good thing on their CV, bring down these hugely inflated executive salaries. You might start attracting another group of people who are more committed more culturally appropriate to the public sector and to public enterprise, driven by different sets of motivations, and are not expecting that these appointments, whether board or executive appointments, are part of a career that is expected to mainly take place in the private sector, and and to a large extent the SOE is just a stepping stone. And I do take Alan's point that sometimes it works out the other way. Instead of being a stepping stone, it becomes... Uh, the stone that crashes on you and destroys your career. But that, of course, is not the intention. So I'm, I'm saying something quite radical. I'm saying, you know, we all the stuff about, you know, our salaries have to compete with the private sector. Our bonuses have to compete with the private sector. We must look for people who have business savvy, who have, for example, MBAs. Nothing against an MBA, but you don't have to have an MBA to run a parastatal. In fact, MBAs to some extent carry hidden cultural messages which incline you 
to a different attitude about what the, the, the mission and the values of an organization should be. There are other schools of um, becoming a competent executive in the public sector. So this is, I think we've got it wrong. It may be that affirmative action is a way of looking at it, but I think it's a much broader range of not understanding who are the kinds of people, where to find this talent, how to nurture this talent, and to stop trying to make the public sector uh, a pale and less competent shadow of the private sector and understand that it's a different undertaking. The one is rugby, the other one is cricket. Uh, it's, it's a different sport and we need to select different players and that's when we'll, we'll correct the values and we need to get out of the small interlocking politically connected and adjacent half politically connected business elite that is getting all the appointments and is incestuous and has too many other agendas and is failing us and is failing the country. I couldn't agree with you more, Prof, though some of those insights. But I was struck by the point around perhaps maybe the need to review and lower the board fees. Um, and because most of these board members are pretty much there for fees. And, and uh, perhaps maybe that's, that's not fair because we have not scientifically got to that kind of calculation, but there is merit. One of my observations has always been most people who are sitting in those boards, they sit at the behest of the minister, which means they become proxy. And all the wars that the ministers fight, when you look, when you look very clearly, all the wars that the ministers fight, they fight through their proxies. And, and, and there are two issues here. One, the independence of those board members becomes highly questionable. It means they are not in a position to exercise their fiduciary responsibility as a should because their preoccupation that of a minister, not that of an entity, which they need to serve with diligence, which they need to serve with skills, which they need to to, to put it forward. Alan, your take on that? I hear what Prof is saying, but one of the things that we need to be, we have to be very, unfortunately, very strict on the issue of, of selection. The individuals that generally don't come from, say, because these SOEs that we're referring to here, they themselves are competing now directly with the private sector providers, or rather, uh, most of the elements they are dealing with are, by their very nature, uh, business, okay? Government has also taken the view where they want to expect these organizations to self-fund. In other words, they should generate their own P&Ls and they should actually generate their own profits to fund their own capital expansion. Uh, to the extent where they borrow, they must borrow on the back of their own asset base, on the back of their own capital that exists in those particular organizations. It is, in fact, uh, interestingly, the people who don't come from business who actually mostly run a lot of those parastatals. As a matter of fact, you see quite a number of senior civil servants, former civil servants, who have actually been appointed to quite a number of the SOEs over the last 15 years. That's what the South African government has actually done. And it has not worked very well. Even when you look at boards, they've actually done exactly the same thing. The majority of those board members in many of the SOEs, they didn't necessarily come from business experience. They came from a government senior level experience. Some of them are academics, you know, 
Mahobo um, was an academic. And so you've seen that particular thing and we're questioning that in the final analysis, not to say that you can only find, and when I say experience, I don't necessarily mean experience in running a big corporation as other JSE, but I mean you've got experience as Prof is saying of running complex organizations because we want to have a balance in terms of that particular team. You're not going to have people coming from one side and no people coming from the other side. You even need people who come from the NGO sector coming into those places, keep people who come from the developmental sector coming. That's what you mean by a balance of that particular of that particular board. But in the final analysis is that from a culture and a values point of view, the government tried to, to interpret its own developmental role by saying, but the SOEs must actually be able to stand alone. You are now no longer measuring the contribution that they are actually making in creating the infrastructures that you need, whether it's a power infrastructure, whether it's a telecoms infrastructure, whether it's the rail infrastructure, whether it's a water and sanitation infrastructure, you are not actually now doing that to enable the economy to grow. You are now focused on making them to be profitable for their own sake so that they can create some kind of a rent dividend to contribute to the fiscals, which is something that is actually not making any sense whatsoever. You see a similar pattern with the DFIs. They're not necessarily playing the role of being development finance institutions. They are trying to make a profit themselves, so they start to behave more like banks. They become very, very risk-averse. They become extremely uh, tight in terms of not understanding that. But your role is to facilitate development. Even if you don't make a profit, calculate your contribution, economic value created, by way of how many businesses did you finance and how many of those businesses are paying a tax, how much is that tax, how many jobs have been created, what have been the, the impact on suppliers and customers and all that kind of thing. So the confusion uh, needs to be resolved because this thing around the values and the earlier point that I was making about the flow effect is that when you then create an organization like that, that hires on IQ, the, the, the variance between people on IQ is going to be very small. And that's what I was trying to make, the point I was trying to make around IQ. The variance between people is going to be very small. The variance on EQ is the one that's going to be wider. And that's where the high performers are actually going to come from. And I was making that as an example of saying your template would then reflect that. Your template would say we hire people who meet this particular criteria. (laughs) And therefore, things like affirmative action will be things that are added over and above as you eliminate the people that are there. But first and foremost, is everybody competent? Is everyone supposed to be able to do this particular job? Mm. What are the other aspects? Because if you've got a white man that's more competent than me, you can't be hiring me because I'm black, especially if the gap in that competence is that wide. Unless you believe very strongly, I can come in as a deputy or as a a chief operations officer, I will then learn from this white man who's much more better than me. You give me two, three years, and then I'll actually be uh, adequate Mm. and and good and good for and, 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 and good for the role, yes. On that note, let's take a quick break as we gravitate towards the end of the show. We'll be back in a minute. Beyond Governance, making sense of doing business in South Africa, is proudly sponsored by Plus94 Research, the science of decision-making. We've weathered the unexpected. We've stepped into a new world. And now it is a time for our businesses to re-emerge. Sure-footed, clear-headed, and strategically on point, It is a time for greater certainty, for accurate, actionable market research and business intelligence to make effective, up-to-date decisions. South Africa, that is how we move our businesses and economy forward. Plus 94 Research, the science of decision-making. Welcome back. This is Beyond Governance. Wow, what a fascinating conversation. 
I'm, I'm having uh, with uh, Ellen McGorkey here as well as Professor Peter, Patrick Fitzgerald uh, on the mischief of um, state-owned entities. We we are probing, uh, you know, what are the causes of massive exodus of executive in SOEs, and bearing in mind the SOEs have such a a great role to play in the economy if the leadership of these SOEs um, it finds itself in turbulent waters, which means the turnaround strategies that have been there uh, will not succeed, which means uh, we have to employ more and more people to try and get them to grasp with what what the board would have approved, how the, 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 their, their predecessors would have undertook um, those kinds of um, planning to, to try and revive you know, the SOEs. So if we have a massive exodus of SOEs, uh, particularly at the board and senior executive level, uh, the chances of a turnaround solution that we, we are desperately trying to see and, and the extent to which our SOEs can, you know, ride shoulder to shoulder uh, with um, other SOEs that are well-managed, well-governed, uh, it looks like a pie in the sky, which means it's quite imperative that we, as a collective, find ways and means that, that fixes uh, the system, the entire ecosystem, as Mukoki puts out, the entire ecosystem. We have to fix at the board, we have to sit at the system, we have to fix the, the rules of engagement, particularly those issues. As we, we, as we wrap up, um, my, my, my assessment, uh, I'm going to start with Prof here. My assessment is that the common denominator in all OCCs has always been the accounting, uh, um, the, the accounting minister. And because the, the, if the entity is dwindling and is not doing well, so surely the coach um, has to take a, a, a bite. Surely the coach has to take responsibilities. And what you've picked up that the coach as in the minister, uh, is interfering in the operations. Surely the protocols don't allow that. Surely the contract don't allow that. What, how, how do we navigate this particular space of uh, ministers that are perceived to be operational? But, right. Uh, very quickly, um, just in case I was misunderstood, I don't disagree in any way with, with Alan that a board has to have a critical mass of business acumen. Um, but I think my point was nearer to his in terms of how you put the team together. And <clears throat> there are many kinds of people who have business acumen and, and we could spread the, the net a bit wider. In terms of the role of the minister, um, yes, Nimrod, um, this idea that ministers, um, in South Africa, and maybe in many societies, and maybe in all societies, but some societies have developed slightly better protocols, rules, procedures, oversight, um, tend to wish to exceed their roles. Um, I was once in government as a director general. I had some experience uh with uh, ministers, more than one, and their different styles, and which of them wanted to start appointing people uh, down the chain that uh, that they had no protocol uh, right to be doing so. And um, uh, it does bring up uh, uh, the fact that we may, as a society, or the fact that we've had a, a single dominant party system, at least until now, 
that that this balance between ministerial authority, uh, legislation, policy, and and uh, governance and management has 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 got out of kilter with 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 too much politicization or the wrong kind of politicization. I'm not for a moment implying that there 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 will ever be especially in the public sector, a complete of lack of politics. Uh, there will always be some politics, and to be a senior executive or board member of Parastatal, you'll need uh, IQ and EQ, and you'll need some PQ as well. You'll also need to, to have some political intelligence in terms of how to maneuver. But I do think before we, we finish, Nimrod, there's there's two words, the C word and the P word that we we haven't really uttered, and um, which may or may not be uh, the main linchpin that is causing the problem, but certainly doing a lot of damage to to our prestatals, and that is the C word being corruption and the P word being patronage. Now I I think I've already spoken without using the word that there is a pattern of patronage appointments, which is now so embedded, it almost seems normal. We, we don't even understand that these appointments are patronage appointments. And, I mean, I think I've expressed it in a particular way. Uh, Alan has expressed it in terms of looking for merit. Obviously, patronage and merit are always in tension. And um, I think we, we have alluded to that. But I also think that there is uh, uh, a, a lot of corruption, and there is always corruption everywhere in the world, and there there is a greater tendency globally for there to be more attempts at corruption in 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 public enterprises than in private, and there's various reasons for for that in the way these things work. But I I, I wonder how. Um, determined we've been and how serious we've been in rooting out this corruption or how to some extent it's mixed and merged with business networks, with various kinds of mafias, uh, with various kinds of expected relationships of the benefits that accrue when you, when you, you, you find you, you, you manage to position yourself in a particular set of networks and you're able to direct business in a particular way, which also can fly various false flags, such as empowerment at particular times. And you are able to, to spread the benefits in a way that each individual act seems to be a victimless, a victimless crime because you're, you're only stealing the money that belongs to nobody or belongs to everybody, the society. But these things, uh, culminate and they, they come together, uh, uh, and they, they weigh our state enterprises down to the, st- the extent that they cannot proceed. We see the individual cases in the media and we, 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 we grimace or we laugh, you know, uh, Something, a simple stationary item that you can buy at, at, at CNA or PNA for 27 rand is, is sold for 3000 rand an item and so on and so on. And each one of these things seems somewhat trivial, unimportant, but put together 
from the mm-hmm. trivial and they some, sometimes occur on a massive scale. Uh, and we, we, we're not going into all the, the things we know about ESCOM and the case studies and the deliberate sabotage and so on. It's something we haven't spoken about today, Nimrod, but I think unless there's a, a much more determined and, and, and programmatic way of trying to root out this, this, this kind of corruption to the extent we can and to minimize it, we're going to go nowhere with state-owned enterprises in, in, in South Africa, sadly. <coughs> Thank you very much for that uh, observation, uh, and inside Prof. Uh, Mr. Mkoku, your part is short, literally, in 30 seconds. Well, I, I think that the, the main issue, uh, the main thrust, of course, is that the government needs to change its culture and its value system. In other words, the culture must be empowering, motivating it must be the one that's based on performance and, and, and we've got to be able to do things that are very clear in terms of values. Integrity is a very important consideration. You know, integrity, old definition, doing the right thing when the other person is not looking. And I think we need to build a meritocracy because if we don't do a meritocracy, we don't have respect for a meritocracy. It's not the first time these things have happened. China went through the same thing when Deng was there. And I think that you see a different iteration with uh, Xi Jinping at this particular point in time, Lee Kuan Yew built Singapore from rubbles. There was nothing, but the meritocracy is something that they are all understood. We should put it at the center, and that's how you actually build. But if you don't have a meritocracy, all the things that Prof is actually complaining about are actually going to come to bite you because meritocracy includes integrity. You don't just hire anybody else without understanding what kind of values they have, what kind of a set of alignment with the values of the organization is going to be there. So fundamentally, our main problems have got to do with culture and values. You can look at any other organization, organizations that collapse culture and values. Organizations that succeed is because of the right culture and the right values. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, colleagues, for giving us those those wonderful insights, which I strongly believe the listener have had an absolute delight. Um, I think, unfortunately, we have run out of time. We're going to have to leave it here. Once again, thank you very much for coming through. Thank you. Thank you. Pleasure. Thank you. Cheers. Bye. Thank you. Bye.